First of all, I'd like to start off by doing something slightly unusual. If it's easy to do and appropriate to do so, could you check a label in an item of clothing you're wearing and chat to the person next to you quickly about what material or materials your clothes are made from? So quickly check an item of clothing. What material or materials are your clothing made from? And so now, could you, could you put your hand up? Could you raise your hand? if your clothing was made from more than one material. So not just 100% or something, it's made from more than one. Okay, so over half the room, I would say. Now, I hate to break it to you guys, but Leviticus 19.19 19 says this. It says, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. So we're going to have a collection station on the way out for your anti-biblical attire. To, to be honest, guys, looking around, around the room, there's a few other kind of just generally questionable outfits you might want to pop in there as well. Hey. There are many kind of laws like this, particularly in the Old Testament, that seem strange to us. And there's much debate over which, if any, of these laws still apply. But what if this law is saying something more than just not having divided clothing, but that we are not to live divided lives, but rather whole lives, lives of integrity, lives that are set apart, lives that are holy. Today we've got a one-off talk before our Bible overview series begins next week, and it's on a topic that's kind of been bubbling up with a few different conversations I've had with people um, in this church. It's also a great way, I think, to start the new year with this topic, and it's found over 700 times in the Bible. But we don't often hear about it, and that is holiness. Now, it's the wrong time of year, but do we have any fans of camping? Oh, okay. We've actually just upgraded our tent, ready for Focus 2023, come on. It's never too early to start thinking about it, guys. Sometimes I think we can think of holiness a bit like camping. You know, it's fine for other people if they choose to pursue it, but why make life harder for yourself? You know, talk of holiness, I think, can elicit two common responses. The first is that it's simply too hard. You know, it's too hard to be completely holy. It sounds like some kind of moral perfection. It's just unattainable. The second reaction, though, is that it's no longer relevant. You know, we've been set free by God's grace. No more law no more rules. Now, there may be some truth in both of those responses, but ultimately, I believe the Bible teaches that holiness is both possible and it is relevant. And I believe today that through this message, God wants to bring freedom to our lives. So I hope today to bring us to a place where we first stand in awe of God's holiness, where we worship him, as Psalm 29 says, in the beauty of holiness. I hope us then to receive that we, the church, are called together to be a holy people. And only from there, as an act of love and obedience, are we to then pursue holiness in our individual lives. So what is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? Fundamentally, holiness is not about what TV programs you watch or how much you pray. Holiness relates to God. The Hebrew word, Kadesh, translated as holy, means set apart. 
Now, I'm not just talking about being set apart, like, oh, I've set apart, you know, a favorite outfit, ready, ready for the big occasion, or, you know, I set aside my fancy cutlery for when people come around for dinner. But rather, God being set apart means that he is different. He is transcendent. He is holy. He is set apart from everything that he has made. He's completely unique in his being, in his creative power, in his saving power, in his sustaining power. You just flick through the Old Testament and you'll see that God is holy. God's name is holy. God sits on a holy throne in a holy heaven. The whole of Israel's worship revolved around holiness. There were holy priests with holy clothes in a holy land, a holy place using holy temples and holy objects. They celebrated a holy Sabbath and other holy days. They lived by a holy law so they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now we are still fed, aren't we, by holy scripture. We worship the holy trinity. We live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the picture of the heavenly throne room at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4, we read the living creatures day and night never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So let's just begin today with a reminder that the God we worship is holy. The God who says to Moses, do not come any closer, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. And I wonder in our closeness and our familiarity with God, have we lost some of the sense of this aspect of his character? Let's just sit for a moment and dwell on the fact that yes, we can call God father and friend, but he is also the set-apart creator, perfect, completely pure, distinct, holy one. And we are to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. If any of you did um, Secret Santa at Christmas, um, you'll have quickly discovered that although most people stick to the price cap, there's always that one super generous person who's clearly thought, oh, you can't really get much for a fiver these days. Here's a 30-pound bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but being generous like that isn't a concept that makes sense in isolation. You can only be generous in relation to other people. And similarly, God's holiness isn't a kind of abstract quality that he possesses. It's not a quality that drives him from us and locks him in a purely separate box. But rather, God's holiness is a relational concept. It actually describes his movement towards the unholy. And so God's holiness enters the broken world and makes it holy. God's holiness creates holy fellowship with broken people. Sin, the choice to take control and live independently from God, is defeated and dealt with by Jesus the Holy One of God. But it doesn't stop there. God's holiness is also his active opposition to the ongoing effects of sin. The Holy Spirit is constantly now at work in us, making us holy, removing the power of sin in our lives, actively opposing anything that prevents our flourishing and well-being. So let's just zoom out for a moment from seeing holiness as a kind of personal couch to 5K self-improvement plan or a New Year's resolution. And instead, understand holiness as the holy God's movement towards us of creating, choosing, saving, and perfecting a people for holy fellowship with himself. I wonder if that is how you see God. Do you just see him as a mate? and have maybe downplayed his holiness? 
Or maybe, though, do you see him as a distant, strict head teacher and have downplayed his love and his intimacy? He is a holy God who in his holiness chooses to come closer than a brother. So how does God establish this holy fellowship with his creation? He does it by choosing a holy people. In the Old Testament, this people were called Israel. In Exodus 19, we read God saying to the Israelites, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God chooses a people, not because of anything they've done or any holiness they've already displayed, but simply because he's chosen them to be his treasured possession. He then calls Israel to be holy as he is holy. He gives them the law as a map of what holiness looks like in practice, God's good design for human flourishing. Now, in one sense, the Israelites were already holy, simply because God had set them apart. But holiness also meant an actual way of living that set them apart from the other nations, ultimately so that those nations would also come to holy fellowship with God. But now the key part here is the order. The Israelites weren't first given the law to follow, and when they reached a certain standard, God then set them free and rescued them. No, they were set free first to then live holy lives. The order of redemption history is this. It's a very simple two-part equation. Are you ready? It's exodus, then law. It's the exodus, then the law. It's freedom, then obedience. Free gift, then good works. Never the other way around. You are already free. Now live out your freedom. Now following the story of Israel, we come to the New Testament. And this is where we get let off the hook. You know, Jesus has made it possible for us to have free access to the Father. It's all grace. The concept of holiness and becoming holy is now redundant, and we can park that in the Old Testament. So we can all relax. There's no need to go into town and buy some holy clothes and holy utensils. <laughs> but is that actually what we find in the New Testament? Of course we rejoice that Jesus has bridged the gap between God's holiness and our sin once and for all. And there's certainly a different emphasis between the New Testament and the Old Testament. But perhaps surprisingly, when we open the New Testament, we find the theme of holiness is still everywhere. The Greek word hagios is used over 200 times. Jesus is described as the Holy One of God. Believers are referred to as holy ones or saints. And most strikingly, we find that God still chooses a holy people for holy fellowship. First Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The church, the communion of saints, you and me, collectively become the dwelling place for God's holy presence. We are saved by grace alone, but we are saved for holiness. Now this holiness is not the church separating itself off, kind of running from the world and forming a secret holy club, as fun as that sounds, but rather it's God reaching the whole world through a chosen people. So take a look around the room. You can actually do that now. You know, this is God's plan, his strategy. The holy God is here among us, dwelling in the hearts of believers, and we're together being made holy as a church 
in order that God is glorified and the watching world can see what God is like in us. It's not just that we are individual Christians that happen to attend the same building, but rather we are spiritually united. So my choices and your choices, both good and bad, don't just affect me or you. They affect all of us because we're spiritually and relationally connected. And together we are called to be holy, to be a distinct prophetic community, a light to our city and to our nation. I wonder, is that how you see church or how you see your table? As a holy people, as a spiritually connected body which is being formed by God into the image of Christ. So we worship a holy God who chooses a holy people. Having laid that foundation, only now can we turn our attention to the most personal and the most tangible aspect of holiness. And perhaps the one, if we're honest, the one that we're the most nervous about, the holiness of the individual. I say nervous because having been confronted with the perfect, set-apart, majestic holiness of God, you know, I only need to look back at my life through the last hour, let alone the last week, to see where I've fallen short of God's holiness, where my thoughts, my words, and my actions have missed the mark of his holiness. And yet equally, if I look back to where I was when I became a Christian, and then look at myself now, I can clearly see that God has been transforming me. I see his patient, faithful forming of his holiness in my life. Now some of those changes happened in an instant, others across several years, and other things I'm still working through. You know, some of them have been a joyful celebration and a liberation. Others have been a more painful pruning. But God is undoubtedly at work in me and in you, making us more like Jesus, restoring, restoring his image in us, sanctifying us, which means making us holy. You know, becoming a holy individual is not about you disappearing, becoming a hermit and isolating yourself from the world. Neither though is it a competition to see who can become the most Christian, read the most podcasts and read the most devotional books. But rather because God is holy and chooses to live in holy fellowship with a holy people, he journeys with you enabling the reality of that holiness to permeate your whole life. That process is called sanctification, or sometimes spiritual formation, the process of being made holy. Now there are two elements to this. The first is called positional sanctification, which is a fancy way of saying that you have been made holy. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you were washed, you were sanctified. So in one sense, you've already been made holy. It's already done. You're no longer a sinner, but a saint, a holy one, a sanctified one. Now, when you become a Christian, you are no longer a sinner, but a holy one who sometimes sins. And that's crucial. Sin may still be some of your activity, but it is no longer your identity. But then secondly, there is progressive sanctification a fancy way of saying you are being made holy. Hebrews 10 says, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. So you have been made holy, but you are being made holy. 
Your holy status as God's treasured possession cannot be earned or taken away or improved upon. But God's desire is to transform your actual life into his holy image. In other words, you are on a lifelong journey of becoming who you already are. Now, how does this happen? You're probably wondering. You know, there have been hundreds of books written on how this idea of sanctification, of becoming holy, is actually worked out in our lives. There are discipleship models and formation structures and rules of life, many of which are incredibly helpful. But in the context of this talk on holiness, I want to finish off by focusing on two simple concepts. Abide and obey. Firstly, you abide. You rest. You trust in the fact that you are already holy. You're a saint, a holy one, not a sinner. And time and time again, the enemy will attack you, trying to make you believe that your behavior is your identity. You know, you've lied again, so you are nothing but a liar. You've cheated on someone, so you are forever unfaithful. You've given into temptation again, so you are a failure. You are not defined even by the worst thing that you have ever done, because Jesus died for you. Sorry. <clears throat> so yeah, as part of today, I think people need to receive that as a truth. I need to receive that as a truth. Thank you, God. Ah. Sanctification begins with abiding in the finished work of Christ. It's hearing the voice of God who says, you have done that, but come on, child. That behavior doesn't match with who you are and how I see you. Firstly, you abide in your holy status, but then you also abide in the fact that God is making you holy. God doesn't give you a holiness badge and then say, good luck, you know, let's see how you get on. Sanctifi sanctification is God actively outworking his desire to turn you into his image. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, it is not we who change ourselves into the image of God. Rather, it is the very image of God, the form of Christ, which seeks to take shape within us. You know, becoming holy isn't about becoming a black belt in the art of Christianity. It's becoming like Jesus. If you want to know what holiness looks like, look at Jesus. He was gentle, but never soft. He was bold, but never brash. He was pure, but never prudish. He showed mercy without compromising justice. He was full of truth, but never at the expense of grace. And as he was crucified, we read Jesus wore a seamless garment woven in one piece from top to bottom. He lived the perfect, whole, undivided, holy life. 
And God is at work forming his image in you, replacing our divided thoughts, motives, and actions with a single undivided holy life of Jesus. So firstly, we abide, but secondly, we obey. You know, in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, go and make disciples and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. We are sanctified, we are made holy as we live in obedience to God's commands. Now that may sound suspicious, you know, I thought it was all grace. Essentially there are two extremes, two mistakes we can make. The first is legalism. That is salvation by keeping the law. In other words, trying to earn God's favor by works. But the second error is called antinomianism. In other words, it's called salvation without obedience what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Now, in a way, of those two errors, it may kind of feel that the first one is the one we definitely need to avoid. You know, we can't make any rules, can't make any laws, we don't want to try to earn anything. But Bonhoeffer goes on to argue that, in fact, cheap grace, the idea of salvation without obedience, has in fact been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He calls cheap grace the bitterest foe of discipleship. Now in our culture of independence and self-actualization, the concept of obedience can just feel alien, outdated or even controlling. But it is a lie that true freedom is unformed and unconstrained. You know, God's commands are the shape of life for the holy ones, the framework for human flourishing. Jesus, the most free person who ever lived, was totally obedient, even to death on a cross. We don't obey out of duty or to earn or to impress or to compete. We obey out of love. In John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will, you will obey my commands. And I think how you hear this verse will essentially define how you hear the whole of this talk and ultimately how you live your whole life as a Christian. Listen carefully to this. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you really loved me, then you would have done exactly what I said. That is works-based righteousness driven by fear. Jesus says, once you know that I love you and that there's nothing you can do to earn that love, then because you love me, of course you'll obey my commands. That is grace followed by obedience. That is obedience flowing out of love, out of trust, out of faith. That is obedience that sanctifies, obedience that God delights in. We are not saved because we are holy, but we are saved to be holy. Is exodus, then law, freedom, then obedience, free gift, then good works. Not simply behavior modification, but inward transformation to become like Jesus, sanctified and holy, our divided life woven into the seamless image of Christ.